0: Hi everybody, this is Sierra.
1: And this is Matt, and welcome to Monkey Business, your favorite podcast about primates and PhDs.
0: Today we'll be talking about a behavior that has been extensively researched in primates known as prosocial behavior. This type of behavior is any behavior that is performed by one individual that results in the improved welfare of another individual or individuals. And often includes things like gift giving, donations, and grooming. It is very prevalent throughout both primates and humans, and thus has been an important topic in prior research.
1: Cue that intro, Oliver. All right. So this is kind of right up my alley, and I've done a lot of reading into primate prosocial literature. But Sierra, feel free to tune in with questions, comments, and anecdotes whenever you need to. So Sierra, you mentioned the definition that we'll be using today, but I'm going to actually expand on it a little bit. Prosocial behavior is any behavior performed by one individual that results in the improved welfare of another individual. This behavior need not have an immediate cost to the benefactor, but if it does, then the behavior would also be classified as altruistic. Both prosocial and altruistic behavior are further distinguished from cooperation, which is also something that we study in the lab, and has been studied extensively. Um, but cooperation usually implies a joint and synchronized action between two individuals. So while cooperation is an important research topic, we're probably not going to discuss it much here, and we'll most likely discuss it in a future episode. Yeah, it's,
0: I think, Cooperation is kind of thought of as kind of this umbrella term that includes a lot of little different niches like pro-social behavior, altruism.
1: Yeah. And 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 I think it all comes down to your definition, too, right? We just won't talk about it too much here in this, and, and we'll save that specific cooperation for another time.
0: All right. So... Some prosocial behaviors might include grooming, food sharing, or perhaps alloparenting, right?
1: Yeah, precisely. So those are actually some of the most common forms of primate prosocial behavior. So take grooming, for example. Although grooming has a biological function, primates often will engage in more bouts of grooming than would be necessary if its only purpose was to remove parasites.
0: That's a good point. I mean, just like humans, we love to have our backs rubbed.
1: Yeah, that's true. I do love that. So the presence of prosocial behavior in wild primates has been extensively documented. We've seen chimpanzees adopt offspring and care for them when their caretaker dies or goes missing. Um, in many of these cases, the adoptions are done by related individuals, but in other cases, they're not. Which, as you can imagine, Sierra, is a very costly behavior for that adoptive parent. It also is tremendously helpful for the offspring who would likely not survive had an individual not stepped up. We also see aloe parenting in many neotropical monkeys like capuchins, marmosets, and tamarinds. A couple studies even reported both white faced and tufted capuchin monkeys engage in aloe nursing, mm-hmm. which is like when an unrelated female nurses an offspring uh, that's not theirs.
0: Can I ask you a question about that? Yes. Was the other female? Producing milk?
1: Yes. Yeah. So oh, okay. it, was, um, it was lactating um, and it was nursing these uh, offspring. Okay. Um, I don't know the details of the study that well off the top of my head, and I don't know how related those other individuals were. Got it. There's even been some research into thinking that instead of like ala-nursing it is it might be like just this suckling behavior that kind of acts like a pacifier in a way. So there's lots of different kind of interpretations of it, but it has been seen and it has been documented. Interesting. Also, like you said, uh, you mentioned grooming and grooming is abundant across the animal kingdom. And so is passive and active food sharing. And that's occurred in both primate and non-primate species.
0: So these behaviors are really common, right?
1: Yeah, well, common is a relative term obviously, but this behavior does occur. And I think it's a safe bet to say that there's no one out there that thinks, you know, especially primates aren't performing prosocial behaviors because they are. There's evidence that they are occurring, especially in our closest phylogenetic ancestors. However, I think there's a little bit more debate about the extent to which primates are prosocial and about the mechanisms and the factors that might cause prosocial behavior. So, for example, let's look at humans we're remarkably prosocial. Perhaps the most prosocial animal out there. Some may argue against that, but just look at what we do. We give gifts to friends. We donate to complete strangers through blood drives, charities, and food banks. We teach people valuable pieces of information, which I actually did not think was a prosocial behavior originally. But when you think about it, like giving information to someone is a prosocial behavior. So next time we're in class, uh, we can thank our professor for being so prosocial to us.
0: His job is to be pro-social. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So maybe one day if we decide to stick with teaching in academia, it's we can say that we're doing it because we want to be more pro-social. We also care for sick and elderly people, uh, sometimes volunteering our help to help those we don't even know. We give money to people on the side of the road, and we travel to like third world countries to build housing and shelters for others. So we do a lot of pro-social behavior, and oftentimes there's little to no benefit in us providing such behavior. Of course, sometimes there are rewards like money or reputation, or sometimes we just want to feel good about ourselves internally, but still we help out others all the time. This remarkable propensity to be prosocial has caused these behaviors to receive a lot of attention in research, specifically in like evolutionary research, because they likely played an invaluable role in the evolution of our species complex social structure. And honestly, they might be the cornerstone of human cooperative societies.
0: That's true. I never thought about it like that. And that's a really good point. I also want to just ask you a question really quick. You mentioned in the beginning, there's a little bit of a difference between just being pro-social and altruism. Can Mm -hmm. you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So, and I might get this wrong, but at least it's my understanding that pro-social behavior is a more broad category where, you know, you're providing a benefit to another individual. Altruism, though, at least in my sense of the definition, is when you're helping someone, but you endure a cost. So, for example, if I were to just like, you know, if I'm eating a burger and I were to just give you some some of the burger, like I'm not really enduring much of a cost. And there's certain benefits to that, right? Like reputation, like we build a bigger relationship. Um, whereas, like adoption, for example, in chimpanzees, you'll see males well sometimes adopt unrelated young that have lost their caregiver. And because they're unrelated to them, there's seemingly little to no benefit and only costs associated with that. So that adoption would actually kind of be altruistic in the sense, of course, if they are related, then there is, you could argue for benefit of indirect fitness, which we talked about last episode, right? But If they're not related, it's kind of hard to make the argument for this cost, especially because taking care of an infant is an energetically costly thing to do. It's something, So that's kind of the distinction is whether there's a cost to the benefactor or not. And so altruism is actually kind of rare, but it does still happen.
0: So altruism is always pro-social behavior, but pro-social behavior is not always altruism.
1: Yes, yes. At least by my definition. Someone might have different definitions, of course, and that gets into the science- people have different definitions, which is why it's important to define what you're talking about mm-hmm. in any paper you publish. But at least by my definition, yes. That altruism is always prosocial because you're benefiting an individual. But not all prosocial behavior has to come at a cost to the benefactor. And you'll see that when we talk about some of the research that's been done. Some of them include like an altruistic sort of option, and some of them just have a prosocial option, which mm-hmm. often relates, re- has the benefit to, the, uh, to another. So, Gotcha.
0: Okay. But- For our non-human primate cousins, why is there so much research out there on this topic?
1: Well, so I'll answer that question first by pointing out that humans are not unanimously prosocial. We have our limits, right? So you don't give money to every homeless person you see, and you don't spend all your free time caring for sick people or taking care of other people's children. Well, primates are the same way. They have limits too. And while there's a lot of research out there that shows primates can be prosocial, there's also a lot of other research that finds primates aren't prosocial under certain contexts and under certain circumstances.
0: Okay, interesting. So a lot of research goes into investigating the factors that influence this prosocial behavior.
1: Yeah, pretty much. M- much like other behaviors, prosocial behavior is believed to be context-dependent and may change depending on an immeasurable number of factors, right? So. Uh, A lot of research has tried to untangle what factors influence when and why primates act prosocially, and also if these same factors play a role in human prosociality. So, for example, uh, maybe communication is important between individuals, and if that's true for primates, maybe it's also true for humans. And, you know, obviously we have language and we can discuss those things further, but that's kind of where it's going. Answering such questions like this will not only help us to explain the prevalence of prosocial behavior amongst primates, but it also aids in our understanding of how to encourage it in our own species.
0: Hmm. I think maybe uh, you might say another factor could be a uh, like temperament.
1: Yeah, I see that's that true.
0: Being an influence there—that's definitely
1: something. I, I don't <laughs> know if there's any studies that have looked at that, but I'm sure um, that I'm sure there probably is.
0: Um, yes, I actually know of a couple studies that we're looking at. Personality in chimpanzees and oh, pro sociality. Yeah. Really? And it turns out that, you know, in chimpanzees, certain uh, personality types is what they called it in the paper. And I don't know the paper offhand, but I might put it in
1: the description. Yeah, I'll put it in the description.
0: But they found that certain personality types are more likely to do certain pro social behaviors.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, that is one thing that, and I'll get to that a little bit later. Individual differences in pro social behavior has kind of become very pervasive throughout this field. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's which makes it more difficult to make these overarching conclusions, which is right. why there haven't been too many of them, mm-hmm. um, because individual differences do mark a, a large amount of the results. So we'll get into that here in a second, though. But it, it's a pretty cool field to study. And we obviously won't have time to discuss it all in detail in this episode, but the research out there has really taken off over the past two decades.
0: Well then, uh, tell us a little bit of what's been done, since we can't go into all of it.
1: Okay, sounds good. So the first kind of two lab studies that were conducted on prosocial behavior were actually done by two different labs, but they were published around the same time. So first was the study by Joan Silk and colleagues in 2005. Uh, Sarah Brosnan, our advisors actually on that paper. Um, And then the second study was by Keith Jensen and colleagues, and that study came out shortly after the first one in 2006. Both papers used what is classically known as the prosocial choice task. These kinds of tasks vary from species to species and experiment to experiment, and they've evolved over the years. But essentially, one primate that's known as the actor is given the choice between two options. Uh, these two options uh, used in these studies were a selfish option that were, that when selected only rewards the actor, and then a pro-social option that rewards both the actor and the partner. The Jensen paper also included a spite option, um, and I think they might have included an altruistic option, but either way, these have also been used in the future where you can choose to Um, deny another individual food, that would be spite. You can also, like I was saying, with the distinction of the altruistic option, there's somewhere the individual can decide to be altruistic, in which case they pull in or decide to give food to the other individual, but they don't receive any. So that's kind of where the idea of like a cost comes in at least on a simple term, right? Energetic cost for them. An energetic cost, yeah, because mm-hmm. you can get into some of the cognitive mechanisms like reputation and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. These trials in which they decide are usually compared to a number of different kinds of controls, but basically researchers want to see if primates will choose the prosocial option more when their partner's present versus when they're absent. And if they do, that would indicate that they have a sort of regard for the other individual's welfare. However... In both studies, they did not find this to be the case.
0: So then they didn't find any prosocial tendencies?
1: Uh, Sort of. I mean, both papers actually do an excellent job not concluding that prosocial behavior is non-existent. But rather, their interpretation is that in these contexts, chimpanzees seem to be more motivated by their own self-regard, not by the regard of their partner.
0: Yeah, that, that is a subtle difference there.
1: Yeah. It it is subtle and and obviously there's been a lot of research out there over the past two decades that have kind of looked at these things and looked at different factors, but we'll get into that in a second. But reading into the research there's going to be a lot of subtle differences between studies. It's kind of
0: kind of like this idea we were talking about how scientific theories can have different interpretations of the same data. Of the
1: same data. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So this sort of experiment, this pro social choice task, has been modified and replicated a number of times in various different primate species. Like, for example, Franz de Waal used a token exchange version of the task. Some researchers include that altruistic option. Some include a spite option. And uh, some take food out of the equation entirely. There's a hypothesis that presence of food raises the um, idea of like inequity aversion, right? And so when food's present, it might pro-social tendencies. So some have looked at if they can remove food entirely by using some sort of like instrumental helping where one individual gives a tool to another individual that they could not normally reach on their own. And then that second individual can then use that tool to acquire food. So it's kind of that second step process. Um, There's obviously problems and drawbacks with that too. And then also people have looked at things like Factors uh, like stress and affect, or communication between partners, and seeing how that kind of deals with stuff. So, I actually strongly encourage people to read a review written by Kate Cronin. I think it was published in 2012, and it examines a lot of these in, uh, a lot of these factors and their influence on pro social behavior in great length. It's a great read, and it does an excellent job making sense of sort of these heterogeneous results that have come about over the past years and years of research.
0: I imagine that this isn't the only way that pro-social behavior has been tested though, right?
1: No, absolutely not. So the pro-social choice task is just one of many methodologies that have been used. Uh, For example, Joan Silk in another paper actually used a food sharing paradigm. In this experiment, they gave uh, groups of chimpanzees a frozen fruit disc, which is a rare but highly desired food source um, that takes a really long time to consume. So they put these discs in the enclosures and then observed different active and passive food transfers of that disc.
0: Interesting. I used to give uh, those fruit discs to the rhesus monkeys that I used to work with.
1: I wonder if the capuchins would like the uh, fruit discs.
0: They definitely liked, uh, well, we would also like put fruit within the fruit disc and then use Kool-Aid as like the Mm. frozen part. So it was extra delicious, like a popsicle. But I also kind of wanted to get back to this idea that uh, it does seem like a lot of these experiments use food-based rewards, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask, other than that one that you gave an example where they gave a tool to someone who then would acquire a food reward, did you read any that didn't use food at all? Because it is so hard to do any tasks without food rewards, and I find this difficult working with primates.
1: So there was actually a study that kind of looked at this. I don't know any studies that don't use food. I think that it being such a salient reward, it's kind of easy to use that to determine the personal behavior. I will say that de Waal, like uses the token exchange task. So there's still that second order of like they're exchanging for tokens and then the tokens can then provide food. Gotcha. Um, but I don't know. I think like I don't think they use any other reinforcers mm-hmm. besides food. but it's not the end of the world because in 2011 there was a paper published by Mellison colleagues out of the Tomasello's lab and they kind of explored the difference between the food hypothesis and the signaling hypothesis and so long story short they uh, were testing to see if the actors would release a food item to another individual when they were using tokens versus when they were actually like releasing the food item so I won't get into the details of the apparatus, but essentially they could like pull something and it would release either a food item or a token to another individual. If it was a token, that individual could then take the token and exchange it for food. And they actually found that subjects were more likely to act in an altruistic manner when food was involved in all conditions compared to like the tokens. It might not be inhibiting as much as we had previously thought, but that is just one paper. So they use capuchins no i think these were uh, these were chimpanzees yeah it was okay. uh, seven males and seven female chimpanzees at the island chimpanzee sanctuary in uganda oh interesting so But yeah, going back to that paper uh, by Joan Silk in 2013, they found that kinship, rank difference, and begging had significant positive effects on the number of active transfers. And then for passive transfers, they found that these same variables plus relationship quality, which is something that you're interested in, also have significant positive effects on the number of transfers as well. It's definitely a different way to look at pro social behavior other than the pro social choice task.
0: Uh, of looking at it in a non-experimental context.
1: Yeah, exactly. It kind of is um, giving, them the, giving them the giving the fruit for fr- giving them the frozen fruit disc, and then watching kind of what they do. So, mm-hmm. um, pretty cool experiment. And then more recently, there's actually been a push to examine prosocial behavior in what is known as the group service paradigm. Uh, Judith Burkhart and mm-hmm. Carl Van Schaik. Mm-hmm. Of revolutionized this methodology Uh, in the group service design, an apparatus is attached to the home enclosure, allowing for an individual to provide food to the rest of the group but not to itself. This paradigm has many advantages over some of the other paradigms, but it also has drawbacks too. Dr. Burkhart originally tested this paradigm in macaques, capuchins, and marmosets and only found positive results for the marmosets. Later, though, they tested it in a lot of other primate species. I think there's a big paper where they test at least 10 species, including human, maybe even more than that. Edwin van Luen has also started doing some of this stuff. um, And he actually just came out with a study looking at the similar prosocial experiment in chimpanzee groups, um, in which the researchers found positive results. Overall though, I think that the consensus across the field is that everyone is testing subtly different aspects of pro-social behavior, and there have been so many subtle context differences that it makes it really difficult to make overarching conclusions, kind of like I said earlier.
0: So given all of this, what do you think?
1: So I am doing my master's on this, so it's a great question. I think one thing that I can say for certain is that pro-social behavior is a remarkably context-dependent behavior, more so maybe than many other behaviors. Like, for example, communication between partners seems to play an important role. Dominance, social relationships, and inequity aversion are also likely having some sort of influence on when a primate decides to be pro-social. Also, there's other things like hormones that might influence this behavior, and this has only been researched in a handful of studies. So that's probably what I would feel comfortable saying now for certain, because I still think there's so much in this field that needs to be done to understand it more. It's also kind of why I've enjoyed studying it, and I hope to soon be participating in research of this field. It
0: definitely sounds like future research will be invaluable to the advancement of this field.
1: I couldn't agree more. All in all, this field of study has come a long way from its earliest research, which suggested altruism and prosociality may be uniquely human. We know that prosocial behaviors and even altruism do occur in non-human animal species, but the mechanisms that give rise to such behavior and the ways in which it evolved throughout our evolutionary history still remain unanswered. Hopefully, future work will continue to answer these questions and further elucidate the proximate and ultimate mechanisms of prosociality.
0: I've noted that sometimes you say animal species and not just primates. Is prosocial behavior present in other species aside from non-human primates?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It it is. I'm actually glad you asked that, and I totally should have mentioned it earlier. But primates are not the only animals that act prosocially. Rats will rescue partners that are trapped inside of a cage. Uh, Jackdaws, which are a member of the Corvid family, uh, like crows, actively food share with other individuals. And dogs, which like Blondie down here on the ground, will often aid humans through instrumental helping. Um, I think there was one study where it showed that the dogs would actually help uh, owners like open doors. And we know that too, right? Through training, um, dog training, there's lots of service animals that can do that sort of stuff. Sarah Marshall Pascini, which I apologize if I'm saying that name wrong, actually has an amazing review as well that really focuses on non-primate pro-social behavior. And I would recommend reading that 10 out of 10.
0: What year was that
1: one? 2016. All right. Like I have those numbers just memorized nice. in my head. It's right <laughs> when there. You, for when you. <laughs> you cite them so often, it's like it, it becomes. You just like kind of remember it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I think I cite uh Sarah and Kate's work all the time on those two reviews because they're so well written. Um, and and especially Sarah's is pretty recent in 2016 for a review paper. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's a super exciting field. I think there's still a lot to that needs to be understood and a lot needs to be done, but it's kind of a cool field to research. It also can be a little contentious. I think that there's a lot of people who have thoughts about it. And so I think it's important to make sure you keep your interpretations from going too crazy, but also making sure you control for a lot of things. And and uh, it's really it's been a really interesting uh, field to kind of explore.
0: So since it's so context dependent how do you think you're in your future research going to like navigate trying to take into consideration the context in which you do your experiments
1: that's a great question I think I think the most important thing is being aware of the previous research right Mm -hmm. being aware of like those factors that Kate Cronin talks about in her review um, as well as you know things like the signaling hypothesis in that uh, Mellis paper, right, in uh, 2011 that looked at food versus the signaling hypothesis and showed what is the signaling hypothesis? So the signaling hypothesis, they they looked at this too. I forgot to explain that. But essentially they also tested to see if communication between individuals was important mm-hmm. and they found that when given the ability to communicate, I- individuals acted more pro-socially towards those in which they could communicate versus those with which they could not. Okay. So kind of indicating this idea that like communication might be a, an important factor to uh, allow for post behavior to occur. So like taking in something like that we'll use that as an example right So when I'm designing an experiment, um, you, most often to test a mechanism or a factor that is affecting post behavior, I want to make sure that I use a methodology that will allow these factors to still take place. Um, so like for example, if we believe that communication is important for post-social behavior when i'm designing a task that isn't testing for communication i want to allow communication to occur Um, because there are some experiments in the past that have found you know found null results or found like negative results for post-sociality and then you know you look at them and it's like oh but they didn't even you know there was a solid barrier between the individuals they couldn't even really communicate verbally maybe visually they could but maybe not verbally and so you, you look at all these little differences, and you just want to make sure that you are allowing them, which is kind of what I'm interested in, which is looking at procedural behavior under very ecologically relevant contexts. Some could argue that a lot of the previous research has been done under very controlled, um, dyadic, restrictive context, which is kind of one of those advantages of the group service paradigm is you can test it in a larger social group. And it's also something that you and I are working with, with an equity aversion, but it allows, you know, it allows for some of these factors to like not have as much undue influence on what your results are. And you might get more ecologically valid results or more socially valid results. So just kind of taking in those considerations when you're designing it and making sure that you're not restricting something that might be important, but then also not but also trying to control those things and making sure that it's not just a completely laxadaisical experiment where anything could be happening, because then that really limits what you can interpret from your results. Cool field, but there's a lot of control, a lot to control for, a lot you have to be aware of, and it's one of those things, right? If we could just only talk to them and ask them, you know, why they're being pro-social or why what's causing them to do this, it would be uh, yeah. a real quick interview, and I think we'd be able to get a lot more answers. But I don't know that we'll ever be able to do that.
0: We we're talking a lot about like the behavior of being pro-social. Do you know of any like mechanisms that people are kind of suggesting may promote pro-social behavior?
1: It's a complicated question for sure. <laughs> um, so it's a loaded one. It is a loaded question. Off the top of my head, right? There's lots of different factors you can look at. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in hormones. Um, one of the hormones that people think is involved in pro-social behavior, I won't say promotes, but is involved is oxytocin. Oxytocin is a social hormone. It's used to be called the love hormone, but it's definitely an inappropriate name for it because it also causes antisocial effects too, which is the opposite of pro-social. So we likely think that that has an impact. Some other mechanisms that have been considered, reputation's a big one. The idea that like you were pro-social to me in the past, does that Increase my willingness to be pro social to you in the future.
0: But when you talk about that, though, that brings in a lot of questions about memory because yeah. you're going to have to have a sophisticated system to be able to remember what someone's done in the past.
1: Yes, absolutely. Which is where a lot of this stuff kind of rears its ugly head because, mm-hmm. for example, it's not even, there's not even a consensus that reputation keeping, like this record keeping of reputation, is done in primates. Mm-hmm. Yet there are lots of primates that perform prosocial behavior. So it, you know, it's possible that they are using that. Maybe they aren't. You know, it's it's all these sorts of kind of things, and yeah. um, it gets really complicated with that.
0: Like, how do you even measure reputation?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I will say there's a really cool study. Um, it's actually two studies that look at whether a chimpanzee was willing to work with a partner that was. So essentially, what they did is they trained a partner to be helpful and they trained a partner to be unhelpful and then allowed the chimpanzee to decide and and be cooperative and they were more cooperative with the individuals that were trained to be helpful so they were they preferred these uh these nice slash helpful individuals over so that is kind of this idea but at the end of the day right we can't ask them if they're actually keeping track of the reputation and it could be anything right I mean, it could just be a, a simple it could be simply that they know this individual and they've They recognize this individual, which we do know that they they can recognize individuals with that Nobel Prize study, right? With the, they're able to understand the concepts of other people with the, by looking at the butts of monkeys. But like, there's other (laughs) stuff too, right? They know individuals and they can, like, we, we do believe that they have that ability. But it's possible that they're not remembering distinct events, like through episodic memory, but maybe it's just this feeling they get, right? Like, when I'm around, when Logan's around Ivory, maybe he has a more positive emotional state. Mm -hmm. Although I maybe don't want to use maybe positive, effective state, maybe not emotional (laughs) state, positive, effective state towards ivory, which would could then allow for him to be more social towards her just because of a feeling that he has.
0: Yeah. There was one time I was working with a token trading task and two monkeys would trade with me. And then the next time I did the same session one of the monkeys would always leave when he came up Mm -hmm. and it almost seemed like, Hmm, I wonder what happened prior to this session that made you not want to work together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so like, that's why we we have all these experiments Mm -hmm. that kind of look at that stuff. I mean, even some of the tasks that are being done in our lab now looking at that, like the, the bar pull tasks that we're looking at, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, do you wonder if they stop cooperating after aggression occurs, for example? Or, oh, yeah. um, so all these sorts of things can kind of look at, at all that stuff. And, and that's really the goal of the research is to kind of parse about these factors. And and, and you will you might hear us talk about this too, but like when you're doing a PhD at the end of the day, you take a research topic and you slowly just narrow down and become this niche and you become an expert in this little niche. And I feel like with the process of research, I feel like that's pretty popular too, right? It's like you're really focusing in on this one factor, this one mechanism. And none of these are necessarily mutually exclusive. It's not, I I fully believe it's not just one mechanism that's causing these different results, but actually a combination of all these. But as a researcher, you can't test everything. You have to really hone in on what you think is important. Like one of our senior graduate students who just graduated, she was really focused on this idea of like, Affect and cooperative and competitive interactions that were occurring before the prosocial task. The idea being that, like, if something agonistic just happened before, you know, say Sierra was just mean to me prior to me deciding whether I want to be prosocial, it might impact whether I am prosocial. So, like, she she thought that that was an important factor that might affect whether they're prosocial or not, and so she examined that and she researched that. You know, it's all about looking at what's been done, determining what factors you think might be at play, trying to control for some other ones, but you can't control for them all, and trying to determine what impact that factor has or what mm-hmm. whether that mechanism is possible. And then, like we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, which is science is all about getting the facts and then making interpretation. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you you might get some data and you might think this one way, but maybe the interpretation is wrong. And so you just got to keep testing that. So that's, I yeah. think that's just the, what it is. And and I think that's what it'll be for a long time. I don't think that there's one factor that's like causing social behavior versus not. And it's like, if it's present, personal behavior happens. And if it's not, it won't. Because like you said, personality, temperament, individual mm-hmm. differences are just rampant throughout this field. And, and I, I see that echoed in human research too. You have people who are remarkably pro-social and you have people who do not care about other people and they're selfish. And mm-hmm. and this something, you know, everybody's different and there's no judgment there. But at the same time, like how why are we expecting to make these overarching species specific conclusions when even our species is marked by remarkable individual differences? And so I think that's a something that maybe we want to even look at the capuchins, right? Looking at temperament and all that kind of stuff. So but anyways. Um,
0: oh, thanks, Matt, for bringing that to us
1: today. Yeah, you're welcome. I think it really closely relates to the cotton-top tamarins from the previous episode as mm-hmm. they are a species that's uh, used a lot in uh, pro-social research. And they do perform some pretty cool pro behavior with regards to their alloparenting behavior. And so I thought it was a cool little topic. And plus, it's something that I researched, so I'm really interested. Um, so I'm glad we got to talk about it as the third episode of our podcast.
0: Three down.
1: I know, three down. <laughs> So anyways, well, we will just like to take a little quick minute to thank uh, Oliver Eddy for sound production. And just quick note that this episode was written and directed by Sierra Simmons and Matthew Babb of Georgia State University. And we hope that we will see you guys again next week.